Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's a special today, special day today in the United States, at least. Monday, February the 19th. It's a national holiday. It's President's Day. Uh, originally, this was George Washington's birthday, and it's a day we're supposed to celebrate all American presidents, not just George Washington. So I think it's appropriate that today we're going to celebrate an almost president. Hubert Humphrey was vice president under LBJ. He ran for the office. He was the Democratic candidate, I think, in 1968. He was beaten by Richard Nixon. Uh, and uh, we have a major new book out about Hubert Humphrey, a major figure in the Democratic Party and in the liberal movement of the 20th century. It's by James Traub, a uh, old friend of mine. The book is called True Believer, Hubert Humphrey's Quest for a More Just America. And James is joining us from New York City. Uh, James, uh, let's do some counterfactuals. Had, uh, had Humphrey become president, would America be more just, to borrow the subtitle of your, your new book? Well, maybe. I mean, what I really think is that 1968 was such an incredibly bitter and polarizing year. I mean, any of your listeners who are old enough to remember that moment know that the period we're living through now is something like what, what that was like then. I don't think anybody could have been a very effective president at a time when America was as bitterly divided as it was then. I would say in your counterfactual that um, Hubert would have ended the war a lot, the Vietnam War, uh, a lot faster than Richard Nixon did. America certainly would have been more honest because Hubert was a deeply honest person and Richard Nixon, of course, was almost a pathologically dishonest person. So I don't have any question that he would have been a much better president than than Nixon was. I just think 1968 was a very hard time for anybody to be president in the United States. Was he an ambitious man? I mean, some of your narrative and the conventional narratives about Humphrey, he certainly wasn't a Kennedy or a, or, or a Roosevelt. He didn't come from any kind of political aristocracy. Did he always want to be president? Did he want a major career? Or it just in an odd way kind of happened? No, guys like this don't get as far as Hubert did by accident. These are guys who, when they were growing up, there are these people all over America who are brilliant guys and great talkers and they're gregarious and they're ambitious and they love politics. And everybody around them says, someday you're going to be president. So Hubert actually grew up in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, right in the dead center of America, a little town called Dolan, South Dakota. And um, he was the Dolan, South Dakota version of he'll be president someday. Um, and Hubert, he thought about that, I'm sure, somewhere in the back of his mind. But as he advanced politically, he became the mayor of Minneapolis when he was very young. He became a senator when he was very young. People spoke about him as a potential vice presidential candidate and possibly even someone who 
should be running for president still when he was very, very young, when he was 40. So, yeah, he thought about that a lot. He hungered for it. There's no question. Did he model himself on 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 Truman, given that Truman was also uh, a Midwestern boy from a, a middle or even lower middle class family? Did he imagine yeah. himself as the the next version of Harry Truman? Never, never. And the reason for that is, um, first of all, Truman wasn't a figure uh, when Hubert was growing up. Second, when Truman became vice president to FDR, it was bitterly disappointing to progressives like Hubert because they thought Truman was a hack. They, he was, Truman was always thought of as the instrument of the Prendergast machine in St. Louis. He was thought of as just a, a hack politician. Hubert's models were uh, the earliest one, well, this is even before he was born, his father's model was William Jennings Bryan the great prairie populist who ran as the Democrat for president in 18. Another great failure. Another great failure. But a, a how many times, uh, James, how many times did he run for president? Four? four ran, I think four times. And lost every time. Yeah. Worse than the Absolutely. 49ers. You know, that's, so, you know, if you're, if you're a, a more ruthless guy, then your judgment on someone like William Jennings Bryan is loser. But if you're a romantic figure, who who uh, who uh, dreams of holding an audience in the palm of his hand, of, of leading people to a better world? Well, Brian was a passionate, romantic, magnetic figure, and he was succeeded in the Humphrey uh, uh, Temple by uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson who in turn was succeeded, now we're talking about Hubert's own youth, by FDR. Hubert worshipped FDR. Hubert thought he'd be a political scientist, and he wrote his master's uh, thesis at Louisiana State University on the political philosophy of FDR. This at a time when people would have said he didn't have a political philosophy. He was just a kind of pragmatic innovator. But and, that, Hubert, and that was his philosophy, or that certainly that was, was his, his recipe for success. But, you know, Hubert would have said, and I think he would have been right, that FDR codified what liberalism was. FDR said, uh, I still believe in capitalism. I still believe in markets. I still believe in limited government. But, but the old 19th century uh, era of rugged individualism has proved to be a catastrophe for ordinary working people. And uh, America in the 1930s appeared to be uh, having have become an economic oligarchy. And so Hubert deeply believed in what we would now call, they didn't call it that, a social, the social democratic vision of FDR's New Deal. And so I would say that he was kind of marrying that prairie populist thing he'd grown up with, with this much more modern idea of an administrative government, a professional government, a compassionate government, but, you know, a highly um, organized government, organized on behalf of the interests of, of ordinary people. So in a sense, he was William Jennings Bryan with a little bit of technocracy and less nostalgia for any kind of agricultural vision. Yeah, of saw, I mean, I Hubert was not you know, he is an idealist, but he was a highly intelligent, thoughtful person. And he understood that 
Brian, maybe a little like Andrew Jackson before him, was a kind of prophet of the past. And this was not the America, this was not the world America was becoming. Uh, and Hubert was a very forward looking person and a practical person. He was a mayor, you know, he was a mayor of Minneapolis for two terms. And you can't be a mayor if you're a dreamer. A mayor has got a thousand things on his desk and he's got to do them every day. And what Hubert drew you, um, James, to Humphrey? You're from a very different kind of background. You're New York based from a distinguished East Coast family. You were educated at Harvard. You worked for many years for the New York Times. You're in a, you, you, you share very little in terms of your background with Humphrey. Is it because of his, to, to borrow the terms of your, your title, was he a true believer like yourself? Or, or are you intrigued <laughs> by the idea of true belief? Are you nostalgic for that idea? Well, you know, that you, you, Andrew, you've asked a really piercing question there. Um, and I guess the answer is, A, I'm a true believer, though kind of a wised up one. I was brought up in the late 1960s and early 70s. And so, you know, at the time I was growing up, social justice was everything. That's what a, a good person did. You devoted yourself to thinking about and doing what was just. In that sense, Hubert's a very, very kindred spirit. Um, you know, none of the people I've written about, I've written three biographies now. None of them resemble me in any way whatsoever. I wrote a biography. Yes, thank you. There, there you are. I always I imagined you as a bit of a 21st century John Quincy Adam. Well, yes. Yeah, so we're not even seeing, uh, unfortunately, JQA on your list of books. I don't know why, but it's not there. Yeah, we got it. JQA. Mil militant spirit. That's right. Oh, maybe I'm not seeing it. Okay, I think it's at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. So, so you wrote a book in 2017, John Quincy on, on John right. Quincy. So Adams. I, I wrote a book about John Quincy Adams. Uh, you know who, but who was also a true believer. Okay, he was also a passionate idealist, almost a self-destructive one. Um, Judah Benjamin, who none of your listeners would know about, of all likelihood. Uh, and yeah, was, that was your 2021 book. Right. So that was, and that was, by the way, a book I was asked to write and I was delighted to write it, but it was not something I thought of myself. He was, he was the number two to Jefferson Davis in the Confederacy. He was the most politically important Jewish person of the 19th century, and he was on the wrong side. And he was a great assimilator, and he assimilated onto the wrong side. He was an extraordinary, charming, uh, brilliant uh, figure whom I was intrigued by, but don't didn't feel a sense of identity with the way I do with Adams, who I revere, and the way I do with Humphrey, whom I admire very much and feel a kind of sadness for because, you know, you began with the, his terrible 1968 tragedy uh which marked him very deeply and and he suffered a lot during that time you're not uh as i'm sure you can guess uh you're, you're not the first author to write a book about hubert humphrey in fact samuel friedman wrote one earlier this year we had him on the show another interesting book into the bright sunshine of human rights which focuses more yours is a broader biography Friedman's book focuses on Humphrey's speech. Uh, what is it at the, the 48 uh, Democratic Party convention in Philadelphia on civil rights? How central in your view was that speech to Humphrey, both intellectually and professionally? 
uh, you know, the fact that it's not the axis that my book turns around as it is the axis of Sam's book is just a difference, as you say, in focus. My book is about, about the whole life. But this was this is what made Hubert. It's what made Hubert who he was, because so he already was a prominent person as a mayor. He was unusually a, a national figure because he was a he was a. Uh, a, a brilliant young liberal. He was boundlessly energetic. He was a great talker. He was made the head of something called Americans for Democratic Action, which is the, the group of Cold War liberals, anti-communist liberals. And as such, when this moment came in 48, when the liberals said, we've got to make the Democratic Party stand for civil rights, remarkably, the person they turned to to lead that charge was this young mayor of Minneapolis. He was the guy. And so um, he he felt the immensity of this moment. And and there's um, it was a terribly uh, dramatic moment for him because uh, Truman's people had all said to him, if you give this speech, if you demand a civil rights plank, You'll, you'll, Harry Truman is going to lose the presidency because the South is going to bolt and the Democratic Party is going to be divided and you will be nobody. You will destroy yourself. Well, he was ambitious. He was immensely ambitious. And so this was an almost overdefined moment when his deepest ideals stood on one side and his ambition on the other. And he was agonized. He didn't know what to do. He turned to the two people he cared about most, his his father and his wife, and he said, what should I do? And his father's first reaction was, Hubert, don't do it. It's a catastrophe. And the more he listened to Hubert, the more he thought, you know what? This is what you believe. You must do it. And he spoke to his wife, and his wife said, Muriel. And his wife said, Hubert, I know you. You must do this. And so Hubert really thought that he was going to do the Lord's work and possibly be thereby destroyed. And instead, he achieved the fantasy of every idealist. By virtue of doing right, he made himself glorious. And he was on the front page of all the newspapers. And he was, for a, a, a period, adored in the civil rights world. He was the great liberal hero. And so that really was the making of him as a national figure. How important was that speech in the history of the Democratic Party? Another New York Times uh, writer, David Leonhardt, was on the show a couple of months ago talking about what he sees as the death of the American dream. And he sees that closely connected with uh, progressive obsession with, if not civil rights, certainly uh, cultural identity. Did Humphrey have any idea, any fear that pushing the Democratic Party into focusing on civil rights would undermine its association with the white working class. And of course, in the 60s, the parties turned on their head and increasingly white working class Americans began voting for Republicans and vice versa. No, he didn't. He didn't foresee that. No, I don't think anybody foresaw that. You know, what they thought when they said we're going to pay a terrible price is we're going to lose the South. So they did foresee that. But they thought, OK, that's OK. You know, uh, uh, FDR could have won without the South, though he had the South. Um, uh, 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 Truman lost uh, four deep South states in 48 and still pulled out a narrow victory. So, no, at that time, 
they didn't see that um, that the white working class would react this way. And, and what I argue in the book is that it was not granting full legal rights to black people. That was the decisive political event in terms of this schism that you talk about. I think both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were broadly uh, popular outside the South. However, the premise of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and it was the right premise, morally it was the right premise, is, as he said in the famous speech that was written by, of all people, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you cannot take people who have been in manacles all their lives and take the manacles off and put them on the starting line and say, okay, now you're free, go compete. You have to act in such a way to make it possible for them to fairly compete. Now, once you say that, whatever it is you do, is going to have a kind of zero-sum consequence. You will say, for example, to union hiring halls, you guys haven't allowed black people to become plumbers and electricians. How are they ever going to climb up the ladder so that their kids aren't even plumbers and electricians, they're college students? We have to let them do that. Ultimately, that also leads in directions like affirmative action. Well, then... You are creating a zero-sum relationship between those who have and those who don't have. And, and that's why, starting really in 66 or so, that, uh, that uh, uh, mass uh, uh, leave-taking happens. It, and it begins even earlier, but it really becomes terrible in, in the 66 by-election and then, of course, in 68 when so many of those union working class guys who would be the absolute core of Hubert's support suddenly thought George Wallace, he's my guy. George Wallace was kind of the Donald Trump. The hard hats, which hard hats. Uh, we've done shows on as well. Uh, James, your book's called True Believer, which of course suggests that your interest in Humphrey is in ideological terms as a progressive, a man on the left. But what about, what, what did, writing this biography and, and, and reading and thinking so much about Humphrey's life teach you about the role of personality in, in politics. Of course, uh, Humphrey's political career was shattered and ultimately, I think, destroyed by LBJ, who was the un-Humphrey in many ways, as you note in your book. Yeah. Um, Humphrey, uh, LBJ was also in some ways a progressive. Of course, the uh, the driver of, of civil rights legislation, but also of the Vietnam War. What does Humphrey's relationship, which was, I don't know if it was a tragic relationship, it certainly wasn't a healthy relationship with LBJ, what does it teach us about the role of personality in politics? You know, it's, it's, it's it, it, the most painful moments for me of researching this book were listening to the tapes of LBJ's conversations with Humphrey and reading about it and talking to the people who were there because Humphrey at some level acquiesced in his own belittlement. I don't know that it could have been otherwise. And yet I think from the very first moments they met, 
Humphrey placed himself at Johnson's feet as a, as a student. And Johnson, that was, he was very happy with that. Johnson loved that. Johnson could not bear equal relationships. And that's, uh, Johnson was in many ways a classic bully, wasn't he? He was a bully. He was a, he was a, he was a sadistic bully. He genuinely enjoyed uh, experiencing his power by causing pain to other people, in front of other people. He would humiliate Hubert in front of other people. And Hubert took it. And, you know, you can listen to Johnson's phone calls with his own high-level cabinet members, Robert McNamara, McGeorge Bundy, folks like that. They speak man to man. When Johnson speaks to Hubert, you can just, you can hear Hubert cringing. And you can hear Johnson enjoying making Hubert cringe. And it's a terrible thing. And, and Hubert knew that. He couldn't get out of it. Um, Johnson was never going to change. He was never going to be other than what he was. And all this climaxes in 1968, when everyone says, Hubert, you've got to break with this guy. You, not only do you have to have your own Vietnam policy, but everybody thinks you're his puppet. Just for your own status as, as a man, as a man who's running for president, you have to break with him. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He, it was genuine loyalty and it was fear. And what about the legacy on, uh, on Vietnam, uh, James? Uh, liberals, I mean, we, we take it for granted these days that liberals or progressives would have been against the war in Vietnam or certainly overseas American wars. But in the early 60s, there were progressives, perhaps like Humphrey, who who believed in the idea of America enabling the rest of the world to be freer. How does that fit into, and how does Humphrey fit into the the ideology of the Cold War and America's centrality. So, so that's a very good question. And the truth is Vietnam was a liberal war. And when I say that, what I mean is that certainly the way Kennedy thought about it, and of course, Kennedy never really carried out that war, save in its earliest moments, was almost an extension of his belief in foreign aid, that America in its bounty and in its power could remake the world, that this was America's moral calling. And, and Kennedy's visceral, profound hatred of communism meant that it was unthinkable to him that Vietnam could be better off under a communist regime. Communism to him meant slavery. And so uh, it, 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 it began with a kind of liberal romance. Now, LBJ was um, too hard-headed to totally think that way. But you read his speeches about how we're going to bring the equivalent of the Tennessee Valley Authority to the Mekong Valley. And you hear that same note. And so, you know, Hubert was, before he became inducted into the administration, when he had no choice but to toe the line, was really torn. On the one hand, he had this romantic Cold War vision that America was going to remake the world. On the other hand, he had enough experience of the world by this time to understand that most of these rebellions in the third world were not about communism versus capitalism. They were about people's wish to be free of their colonial master. That's, that's really what was going on in Vietnam. He knew that. 
He knew that. And if he hadn't become LBJ's vice president, I feel very confident that he would have been one of the doves who opposed the war. But it didn't work out that way. Easy to say that now, James. Uh, we are that. absolutely. If, if you know, if I hadn't um, done X, I would have. I would have been president of the United States. It's this, but it's just it's the pathos of it. You know, it's the pathos. We're speaking with James Traub, the author of True Believer, Hubert Humphrey's Quest for a More Just America, a sad story, maybe even a tragic one in 2024. James is one of the great thinkers on liberalism, the author of a number of books. Uh, uh, his previous book was A History of Liberalism. And I want to thank our friends at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, another excellent liberal publication reminding us of the virtues of liberalism going to run a short feature on liberties and then we'll be back with james traub to talk about hubert humphrey's relevance in 2024 so don't go away anyone we'll be back in a second beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with James Traub, one of America's leading journalists, top journalist, author of many important books teaches at NYU, used to work at the New York Times, has a new book out uh, this week or last week, True Believer, a biography of Hubert Humphrey. In the first half, James, of the show, we talked about Humphrey's historical relevance and what happened in the 60s. Let's fast forward. Um, you wrote a piece uh, about Humphrey's liberalism for our time, or someone was reviewing your book and described it uh, as uh, a book about Humphrey's relevance in terms of the liberalism for our own times, for the 2020s. What does Humphrey teach us? What are the warnings and what are the opportunities in your biography? Well, so Andrew, you asked a question about, about 1948 and race and civil rights and whether Hubert had understood what price the Democratic Party was going to pay. And so I think the answer to your question has a lot to do about has a lot to do with what Hubert became in the last decade of his life. And this is where I think he does have something relevant to say to us. So after Hubert absorbed this terrible loss in 6080 with his wounds, but the fact is his desire to be in the game was insatiable. He was able to run for Senate again from his home state of Minnesota in 1970, and he won. And he spent the last seven years of his life until he died of, of bladder cancer in January of 78 back in the Senate. And the Humphrey of those last years tried to cure the wound that had been created in the Democratic Party by its commitment to civil rights. Hubert never regretted that commitment one tiny degree. He, he was more than any, as much as anyone else, the person who made that real. Uh, but he recognized he recognized that that white working class and middle class voters, in his view, were not saying, don't do things for black people. They were saying, how can politics, the purpose of politics be to do good things for others 
and not to get any good things for ourselves. In what way does politics speak to our own interests? We're the ones sending our, their kids to Vietnam. We pay our taxes. We're law-abiding citizens. Is our function simply to sacrifice for the good of others who have been left behind? And so that thought led Hubert to think much more about issues in regard to class than in issues in regard to race. And what he said again and again in speeches and to his fellow liberals is we have to find a way to speak to the hopes and the fears of the white working class and middle class and of the black working class and middle class and find a place where those come together. And that meant a number of things. One is that he became a tougher on issues of law and order. And he recognized that many, many black people who live in the inner city uh, had a strong belief in, uh, in law and order. And, and this, by the way, is very closely analogous to the situation we have today where the defund the police movement led by progressives has not only alienated uh, middle-class whites, but, but many middle-class black and Hispanic people who actually would like to see the police, a police presence in their neighborhood. But more affirmatively than that, Hubert said, how can we create an economic policy that offers good employment, that offers full employment and, and good dignified employment to everybody. So this was someone whose focus for so many years had been the creation of fair employment commissions, which was a way of saying uh, commissions that would, um, that would enforce anti-discrimination rules. And he switched his focus from fair employment to full employment. That was the great focus of the last years of Hubert's life. And he tried to lead his fellow liberals away from race-specific issues, whether school desegregation, affirmative action, uh, the setting aside of seats for uh, women, blacks, youth at the Democratic National Convention, any kind of race-specific remedy he was skeptical of. And was one of the consequences that he became like animals crawling across uh, roads in Texas, just roadkill, that he alienated everyone. In the uh, in the Leonhard book, he notes that the real tragedy in the 60s wasn't um, Hubert Humphrey. It was the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, who was able to put that message together in 1968 alongside being a charismatic figure. Was the problem with Humphrey, or was perhaps one of the lessons about Humphrey, is it doesn't really matter what you're saying, it's how you say it that's so important. Look, the American president is a unique office. It's not like being a prime minister in a prime ministerial system, where you essentially rise inside the party, become the foremost figure in the party, the party wins, and then you become head of government. That's not how it works, of course, here. And so when Americans elect a president, they are electing a, a kind of both a man or a woman and a myth. And, and presidents traditionally have had a kind of mythic dimension to them. And when Hubert ran against Kennedy in 1960, the reporters loved Hubert. They just thought Hubert was great, but they felt, you know, Hubert, you're like us. You're a person of ordinary size. 
you're a, a, a sweet man. You're a talky guy. You're, you're like everybody's favorite uncle. And so I think what was missing in Hubert was not a, a, a level of competence that he, that he didn't have, but it was that intangible thing that Americans look for in presidents. So um, in that sense, you know, Hubert was made by nature to be a great senator, but, but only with good fortune. I mean, you know, LBJ became president because he was vice president for a president who died. Hubert could have become president that way. And frankly, the reason why Hubert was absolutely bound and determined to say yes when Lyndon Johnson asked him to be vice president is because Hubert thought the only way I'll ever be president is if I'm vice president first, either because the president dies or because I get the stature that comes from having been vice president. There were three, or there have been three, or the, mo the three most recent Democratic presidents, Obama, Clinton, um, uh, and... Uh, um, we have to go all the way back at this point. So Obama, Clinton, and of course Biden, but otherwise, you know, you definitely have to go all the way back to Jimmy Carter. Well, I, I, sorry, and, and I miss Jimmy Carter. And, I, and I'm thinking out loud here, James, how does Humphrey fit into that? I mean, Carter seemed to benefit from the catastrophe, obviously, of, of Watergate. Clinton is a, a more Machiavellian version, I guess, in some ways of Humphrey. And of course, Obama is an entirely different kettle of fish. How, how do those three compare and contrast? And what no. do they tell us about the future of the viable future of a Democratic Party? I mean, given that we have a Democratic president today, at least in name, Joe Biden, who's increasingly anonymous and in trouble. I, I, I'm not sure I accept the anonymous part, though God knows he's in trouble. Um, yeah, I, one of my theories has been Americans like presidents to be 42 longs. And uh, a lot of those guys you mentioned were 42 longs, though not Jimmy Carter. He's a little shorter. Uh, Hubert is not a 42 long. He didn't have that big, lanky frame that Americans think, you know, belongs in the White House. Ronald Reagan is the supreme incarnation of that. So that's just at the purely human level. The the um, the interesting question raised by somebody like Bill Clinton, you said Machiavelli, you know, and Machiavelli famously says in The Prince, uh, you need a good man willing to act badly. Uh, Clinton was that person. Uh, and, uh, you know, Democrats have suffered a lot. And Americans, sorry to jump in here. Americans didn't care. I mean, even after the, the Lewinsky thing, they all, most Americans thought he'd behaved inappropriately at best, disgracefully for many, and yet they still elected him oh, because they thought he was a good I'm president. Sorry, I wasn't talking about that on the least. Uh, when I say a good man willing to act badly, I mean that Clinton was an unbelievably ruthless politician. Uh, I will never forget the moment in the 1992 campaign when a, a, um, a death row inmate named Ricky Ray Rector, um, who had been lobotomized, uh, was facing uh, the chair. And this guy no longer had the capacity to understand what he had done. And there was a huge movement that said, look, you can't execute this guy. And Clinton thought, if I don't kill him, I won't become president because people will say he's one of those liberals who's soft on crime. And he did a terrible thing. 
He did a terrible thing. And then, of course, there was his sister soldier moment, which is part of the same thing. And you're saying that Humphrey never would have dreamt of doing anything like that. No, right. So that's the Machiavellian thing, a good man willing to act badly. Of course, normally what you get is a bad man willing to act badly. You get Donald Trump. Um, so, So, you know, Humphrey, Johnson certainly thought this. Humphrey wasn't ruthless enough. Maybe that's true. Humphrey really wasn't ruthless at all. And if ruthless means a willingness to trample on others on your way to power, Humphrey couldn't do that. Is there any mileage left, uh, James, in Midwestern decency? I saw a piece you wrote earlier this year on Gene Massey, a Minnesota-based attempt to fix democracy. Is it conceivable that we'll ever get another innocent, decent sort of leader out of the Midwest? Um, Massey certainly looks... She is. She's kind of like that. She's a a, she's a bit more of a technocrat than that. Um, I'll tell her you said so, though. Um, You know, look, Americans still have this romantic thing and Americans still want to fall in love with somebody. And uh, I don't think that that has come to an end. Uh, But in order to do that, to be the person Americans fall in love with, you do have to have this other dimension. Um, you know, John Kennedy had that to, to a fair view well. People loved him, quite independent from his beliefs or what he actually did. They loved him. And so, yes, I mean, I, I believe such a person still can become president. Um, we don't know who, there, there is no such person. Well, right in, in every election, there always, there's always someone from the Midwest, often a governor, a senator, a congressman, well, it's a big part uh, of or woman, and they always say, well, this person has a chance. They're from an important Midwestern state, and they're very likable, and in the end, you never hear any more about them. Well, yeah, you could say that, you know, Hubert's uh, successor, Walter Mondale, you know, another incredible <laughs> exactly. guy I mean, from Minnesota. Sort of... Uh, who was too nice to be president. That's why I say Bill Clinton didn't have the problem of being too nice to be president. So I'm, I'm, I have a weakness for guys Could like we Clinton. combine Clinton and Humphrey? Could you have well, I don't know what a that, Machiavellian that, figure? Like, who was, I mean, Machiavelli, was, uh, Machiavelli wouldn't have been opposed to this. Someone who was good, but also evil. No, no, but I mean, look, so Joe Biden, alas, now terribly diminished. Uh, the Joe Biden of, let's say, 12 years ago uh, was a, uh, a very Hubert-like figure, which is to say he loved people, he was energetic, he lived for politics, he was a profoundly decent person, not nearly as intellectual as Hubert, by the way, not a thinker at all like, like Hubert was. But, you know, it, it, the, the Joe Biden, who was vice president, uh you know, was something like what you're talking about. Um, And, you know, that Joe Biden, if the Joe Biden today were 12 or 15 years younger, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But alas, he's older and he hasn't aged very well. Finally, uh, James, today is President's Day. Americans don't always deal with failure very well. Um, Should we have a day celebrating political failure? And if we did, would... (laughs) Would Humphrey be one of the pin-up men of that? Uh, you know, nobody would object to that more than Hubert Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey would say, I wasn't a failure. What do you mean? I was a boy who was born in a pharmacy in a little town in the middle of nowhere. 
and I got to meet every head of state in the world. I got to be vice president. I got to be a senator. I had a fantastic life. That is what he would say if he were here today. Would you agree with him? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I feel his suffering, but I also feel the <laughs> heroism of his life. Well, he's probably turning in his grave, Jim. Could be.